Good morning. Welcome to all of you who are in the room this morning. Welcome to all of you online, whether you're in Washington, D.C., or wherever you are. Uh, glad that you joined us this morning. Last time that I preached at this campus, I came in the door for the first service, and one of the my friends at the welcome desk said, hey, Pastor Joel, welcome back. I said, well, thank you. I didn't actually go anywhere, but, but I appreciate the kindness. He said, well, I thought you were moving to Africa. Well, indeed we are, but that is still not until August. We're still here for a few more months. But thanks to all of you who have encouraged us. Your support, your prayers means the world to us. I want to go with you if you have a Bible this morning or you want to pull it up on your uh, phone on an app. We're going to be looking at, especially from Ephesians chapter 1. My mom and dad were both born into families that did not have a lot of means. Some people would have called them poor. They wouldn't have called themselves that, but did not grow up with a lot. My, my mom's uh, father was a a bivocational preacher. That meant that he was a pastor a lot of evenings and weekends, but he was also a farmer. He had a huge garden. The years that I remember took a lot to feed his 11 children. My dad's dad was a bricklayer, and he also worked evenings and weekends with my grandma cleaning the church, trying to make ends meet. So my mom and dad uh, met college at John Brown University and fell in love. And then December of my dad's senior year, they got married. The man, John Brown, who was the president at the time, had been given a gift. It was a three-day pass to this beautiful resort in Siloam Springs, but it had to be used before the end of that year. And he couldn't use it and didn't have any need for it, so he gave it to my parents as a wedding gift for their honeymoon. So these two poor college students who had never, either of them, spent the night in a hotel went on their honeymoon to this beautiful resort. So they get married. The next day they get in their old car and drive to this beautiful place, and they drive up and walk in, and they realize it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's like no McDonald's down the street, and the only place you can eat is this restaurant. And when they looked, it was fairly pricey, and so the next morning they got up and they drove to the nearest town and bought some peanut butter and crackers and tuna fish and <laughs> you know what, we're living on love, no big deal. So I had a great uh, three days at this place, but they, they'd been given a little bit of money for gifts at their wedding and they had saved a little bit. So they thought, you know what, the last day before we go home, let's go to the restaurant and just enjoy a good meal. So they got their bags packed and got ready to go and then went down to the restaurant, walked in and they couldn't afford the filet mignon, but they could at least have a hamburger. And so they enjoyed the meal and their time together. And when they finished, the waiter came and my dad said, hey, could you uh, bring us the bill? So he turned to walk away and then he said, wait a minute, aren't, you guys are staying at the hotel, right? They said, well, yeah. I said, well, sir, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's, it's all part of the package. It's all, all there for you. Yeah, I know, ouch. Three days eating like paupers when all the delicacies of this beautiful resort were at their fingertips. A lot of people walk in faith like that. 
The text that we're looking at this morning says that God in Christ has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. So many of us content ourselves with peanut butter and crackers. Let me read it for you. Book of Ephesians, Paul through this book has a number of prayers that he prays for these people he loves. And one of them in chapter three, it ends like this. He prays for his friends in Ephesus and asks this of God, that they, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Have you ever met someone who lives the fullness of God? They live as though all of this is actually true. Paul talks a lot in his letters about what I'll call the it factor of faith. A few weeks ago, the National Football League held their draft. It actually happened in Cleveland, and some of you are going, really, that happened? I didn't even know. Well, it's, it's not a world-changing event, but because it was in Cleveland, I decided to watch it. And so what happens is the, the, the executives of all these professional football teams gather and then over a couple days, they, they draft. They choose the players that they want to join their team. And as you're watching it, there's, there's just gazillions of these uh, journalists and announcers that sit and analyze every little thing. Well, maybe they should choose this guy because, I mean, the deodorant he uses shows that he's really, he, like, really... Little much. But one of the things that they often say is they'll be talking about somebody and they'll say, oh, that guy, I mean, he may not be the most talented, but he has like the, the, the it factor. You're like, what is it? Like one of them asks, well, when you say he has it, what is it? Well, it's not something you can describe. It's not tangible. You can't see it with your eyes, but it, it's... When in faith, Paul would say, yeah, there, there is an it factor. What is it that, that, that makes some people extraordinary in their faith and in the kingdom of God? Paul says it's actually not an it. It's, it, it's a person. It is Christ living his life through us by his spirit, and it's available to everyone. So let's jump into the letter. Paul writes this letter actually from a prison in Rome. He writes it to a church in Ephesus that he loved. He, he actually had been the pastor of this church, some believe for, for up to even three years. So he knew the people well. He knew the church well. And apparently reading the letter, the church was doing well. I mean, there, there wasn't any huge controversies. They weren't being persecuted at that time. But I think Paul was looking at it, and there's nothing that would indicate that this group of believers believe themselves to be part of a story immeasurably more powerful, beautiful, far-reaching, hopeful, and glorious than anything else that was happening in Ephesus. Where is Ephesus? Well, Ephesus is in present-day Turkey. It's this place that Paul had planted a church at the time. If you look at the picture... There was a large temple that dominated the landscape in Ephesus. It was a temple built to the god Artemis. And that was central in the life of this town. 
Paul is saying to this group of people, this little group of people, they, they didn't have a building. They didn't really have a lot of resources. They met in somebody's house. But he's saying to them, the story that you are part of is bigger than any story that a human could write. It's God's story. By his son, he has redeemed a people, his church, and he now lives out his life and his glory through them. His church is this alive thing, this, the actual body of the living Christ. And Paul would say that this extraordinary story is lived out in the life of really ordinary people. What he's saying is that the impact of Jesus living his life through people, he says at the end of the letter, is immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine, understand, but none of it happens by human ingenuity or power. The secret of all this is living life in Christ. What's the secret? What's the it factor? Well, there it is. Let's jump into the letter. At the end of the letter, Paul reminds them, hey, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the life of God. How does that happen? What does that look like? Well, the, the, the it he talks about is being united with Christ. Paul, in his epistles, uses this terminology. He, he often talks about in Christ, or he talks about being united with Christ. Listen to how he says it in chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, all praise to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. What does that actually mean? Well, if I can explain it in literal terms, it means that the presence of God, the living God, has come to live in us. Now, this, this notion of the presence of God is everywhere in the Bible. In the Old Testament, that was the mark of the people of Israel. It wasn't that they were the, more amazing than anybody else. The only thing that set them apart was that in the middle of them was the presence of God. So wherever they went when they traveled in the desert, the tabernacle was first established, and then they lived around the tabernacle. And then when it became more permanent, the temple well, that notion, a temple, the tabernacle, the word actually means that God has come to make his tent, make his dwelling among us, the presence of God. But in, in that day, in the Old Testament, his presence was limited to a physical place. So in the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies where the manifest presence of God dwelled. It was a holy place. One day, when Jesus was with his disciples, they visited that place. They went to the temple. So they're in the temple where this place is that God's presence dwells. And Jesus announces that day a whole new thing. He says to them, this, this temple, this place where God dwells, is going to be torn down. And in three days, I'm going to build it back. 
And they thought he was talking about the physical temple. He was talking about himself. That he is announcing that no longer is the presence of God going to dwell in this one physical place, but he's going to dwell in the lives of people. And he's there right now in the person of Jesus. It is the day that the temple visited the temple. So, in a prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples, this is the night before he died, he's having dinner with them, and he explains the spiritual reality of what it means to be united with Christ. I am leaving you, he said, but I won't leave you as orphans. I will send my spirit. This is how he, he prays for them in chapter 17. Listen to the words that he uses. He says this. My prayer, is praying to his father, is not only for my disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I don't expect that you fully comprehend all that. Jesus is saying that I and the Father are one, that I'm in and he is in me. And now through his death and resurrection, those who believe the message, he says they have now come into unity with us. We are in them and they in us. Jesus uses lots of pictures to talk about this reality. So a few chapters earlier, the same night, chapter 13, he uses the image of a vine and branches. So he says, I am the vine. I am the one in whom the life of the plant dwells. You are the branches. When you are connected to me, when you abide in me, and my word abides in you, life happens. It's just a picture of this reality. For those of you who are Marvel people, let me try to explain it this way. It's more like Spider-Man than it is like Batman. Some of you are looking going, I'm not seeing that in my Bible. It's not in there. <laughs> let me just explain what I mean. Batman is a rich and strong young man. He has lots of amazing gadgets, so his, his power, his superpowers, come from his external possessions. Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider, and his power now is within him, and what he does comes from who he is. So... Paul is saying that something happens to us when we embrace Christ by faith, that he enters and he begins, he first changes your identity and then begins to transform you into his image. So, that is what the scripture means, that we have been united with Christ, that we are in Christ. But union with Christ, it's, it's not an idea you're supposed to try to understand. It's a reality to be lived out in faith. 
I think Paul would also say that it's, it's more than just a feeling that we have, like we feel the spirit. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it. He says that the reality of, of Christ in us will always be greater than our experience or our understanding of it. No matter how much we learn to live this, the actual reality of it, we won't fully understand until we see him face to face. This is the way C.S. Lewis puts it. The presence of God is not the same as the sense of the presence of God. The latter could be a reality, but it may be due to the imagination. The former may be attended with no sensible consolation. He uses this example. The act which engenders a child ought to be and usually is accompanied by pleasure. But it is not pleasure that produces the child. Where there's pleasure, there may actually be sterility. Where there is no pleasure, the act may be fertile. And he says, in the spiritual marriage of God and the soul, it is the same. And this is how he closes. He says this. It is the actual presence, not the sensation of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which begets Christ in us. The sense of his presence is a super added gift for which we give thanks when it comes. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that when we talk about God's spirit living in us, sometimes that creates an actual sensation. It, you remember in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came on them, they, they spoke in tongues. Those are things that still happen. Sometimes God's Spirit will just give you this deep sense of peace or joy. Or it's this manifestation, if you will, that, that he is present. But Lewis is saying it's not that sensation that changes us or begets his life in us, it's the truth that he actually is in us. So the first place that Paul takes us in the conversation is that the it is for us to learn to live with this new identity. This is your identity because you are now united with Christ. So, if you go to a resort and you just go to the restaurant and you order everything you want, but that's not part of the package you bought, doesn't really matter what you think. You're going to pay for the meal. Because that wasn't true. That truth does matter. And, and so Paul is saying, I'm not just talking about some idea. This is the truth. Let me tell you what it looks like. And he says, you've been blessed in, in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What, what does that look like? Well, the first thing he says in verse four is that you've been chosen. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eye. Wow. 
When, when we hear the word choice, we also associate it with rejection. Somebody got chose, somebody got rejected. But that is not the notion here. The Greek word here is not speaking of a choice that eliminates. It's a choice rooted in God's pleasure, and he can choose lots of people all at the same time. Came across a story a few years ago written by Mary Ann Bird. It's called The Whisper Test. She talks about her growing up years and she says this. I grew up knowing that I was different than everyone else and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate and when I started school, my classmates made it very clear to me how I looked to other people. I was a little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. She said, when schoolmates ask, hey, what happened to your lip? I would tell them that I'd fallen, cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to actually have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could ever love me. There was, however, a teacher in second grade, a teacher that we all adored, Mrs. Leonard was her name. She was short, round, happy, just a sparkling lady. And every year at this school, we had to do a hearing test. So that year, Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class. And finally, it was my turn. I, I knew from past years that the way the test went is that the child would go stand over by the door, cover one ear, and the teacher would sit at her desk and whisper something. And then you would repeat back the thing that you heard. Usually just an inane thing like the sky is blue or do you have new shoes? But Marianne says, on that day as I waited for the words of the teacher, she spoke those words that must have been put in her mouth by God. Seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper as she looked me straight in the eye, I wish you were my little girl. Life-changing. Paul says that the God of the universe looked across history and looked you right in the eye and said, I chose you. Second thing he says is that we've not only been chosen, that in Christ we've been adopted. God decided, he says in verse 5, in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He says that in Christ we have all become not just forgiven and no, we become actual adopted sons and daughters of the living God. That notion of adoption is, is in first century culture was, I mean, it still is. It's really profound. We, we, we didn't just, no, no, no. Adoption is that you have been given the name of the family that adopted you. You've become part of the, the inheritance. I remember a few years ago, the privilege of being with a family who was, it was the going to court and finalizing the adoption. And that day, the judge walked in, and one of the little boys was sitting over where the jury sits, and before the judge got out all the formal papers, she turned to the little boy and she said, hey, what, 
remind me what we're doing here today. And the little boy said, today I'm going to become part of a family forever. Wow. God doesn't just redeem us because he's God and it's a good thing to do. No, no, no. He, he, he's in inviting us, adopting us into his family. Then he goes on in verses six and seven and he says, we've been forgiven and redeemed. He says it in verse seven. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sin. Sometimes we have this notion of God that he's just nice and he'll just excuse it. I mean, he's loving. No, no, no. God doesn't excuse anything. All our junk, all our unrightness. He doesn't excuse it. He pays for it. It says that by his blood, the blood of his son, he forgives us. I was reading something a few days ago. A woman who's an atheist, and she was just observing that all of us have this deep need to be made right, to be forgiven. And as an atheist, One of the tragedies of being an atheist is there's nobody to forgive you. Paul says in Christ, God has forgiven us and given us his own righteousness. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 13 and 14, the image he uses is being sealed by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 13, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The way it reads in the NIV is this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, we don't really have that notion of what a seal is. It made sense to them. You remember in the story in the Gospels, when Jesus was buried, they rolled a stone over the, the opening of the tomb, and then it says the governor sealed it. What that was, I mean, it was an actual seal, but it wasn't the seal that had power. It was that if you touch that seal, you were inviting the power of the Roman Empire on your head. Well, he says that when you come to Christ, you're not, you've been chosen and adopted You've been given the Holy Spirit, and that is a seal on your life. Well, can you see the seal? No, I mean, you can't see it with your physical eyes, but apparently in the spiritual realm, it's evident that the enemy knows that person is a person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and has been sealed. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But then he he goes on to say that we've also become heirs. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. Wow. What does it mean to be united with Christ? One of the things it means is that, that we have received a whole new identity. He says that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And some of you are going, Pastor, that is so cool, but I'd kind of like something more tangible. Like a little material would help. And Paul would say to us, you know what? 
you could win the vaccination lottery and get a million bucks. It's actually nothing. This, this is life and it's been given to you. Is it tangible? Well, yeah, yeah it is. So, finishes with this notion in verse 9. He says, you know, this whole idea that God has come by his spirit to live in us, there's part of it that's a mystery. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it's not a mystery because ultimately you can't understand it or it's this mystical weird thing. It's a mystery because it's just beyond our, our understanding. Listen to how he says it. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. Well, what is it? We are united with Christ. We have received an inheritance from God for he chose us in advance and he makes Everything work out according to his plan. What is mysterious about that? Well, the first thing that's mysterious about it is that it's beyond our finite understanding. That doesn't make it not tangible. It just makes it beyond our understanding. There are lots of parts of this that are tangible. The people that are writing this, the people who wrote the story about Jesus actually saw Jesus in the flesh. They heard Jesus' words. They saw him crucified for something he never did. They saw him three days later rise from the dead and they heard him with his mouth say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send my spirit who lives in you. That is tangible. But it's by faith that you receive it. That's the mystery. It's not a mathematical equation. It's by faith. A few years ago, uh, teaching, I was leading my first alpha table. I was in Senegal, and one of the women at the table was raised in a, in a religious um, that, that was not Christian. And so a lot of the things that we were talking about, she had never heard before. About five weeks in, uh, our class was on a Tuesday. On Sunday, she called and talked to Ellen and said, hey, can we just stop by for a minute? I just wanted to see you. So they came over, and we're just about to sit down to supper, so they sat down with us, and we're eating, just having a conversation. And right in the middle of the meal, she puts down her fork and her knife, and she looks at me, and she says, I have a question for you. I said, I may not have an answer, but fire away. She said, well... The other night at Alpha, you said something. You said that if we put our faith in Christ, if we believed the message, that he not only would forgive us, but that he would actually come to live in us. I said, well, yeah, I, indeed I did say that, but it's not my words. That's what the Bible says. She says, okay, here's my question. If somebody did that, how would they know that it actually happened? That's a great question. That's what faith is. Faith is not believing something that has no evidence. It's, it's believing something that you can't see with your eyes. But that has been given to us by his word. And I said, there is so much evidence that Jesus keeps his word, and that's what he said. Okay. The other reason that this is mysterious 
is because it doesn't make sense to us. Why would God want to live in us? That doesn't make sense. He doesn't need us. He's God. Well, it tells us that it's unimaginable, actually, that the Lord of the universe would choose to come live in us and dwell in us. And the reason is because he loves us. Listen to what he says. Even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ. Nikki Gumbel says, if you want to understand the Holy Spirit, you just need one word. Love. When he shows up, he brings the love of God. So as we talk about this in these weeks, our prayer is that we'll take steps deeper into the fullness of what it means that God's spirit has come to live in us. Paul is saying to this group of believers, someday when the story is written about Ephesus, the most important thing is that God, by his spirit, has come to live in a group of people in this city. That's eternal. So here we are 2,000 years later. We're talking about Ephesus. Why are we talking about Ephesus? Because there was a great temple there? No. People are going to Ephesus today to visit because there was a small group of people there in whom the Spirit of God dwelled and there was a crazy first century preacher that believed that that was going to change the world. The temple of Artemis is gone. There's just a few pillars left. The kingdom of Jesus will go on forever. So when the story is written about Cleveland 200 years from now of Jesus tarries, what will the story say? Well, about every 50 years, they win a championship in something. But that is not what's important. <laughs> did I just say that? I did. I'm not speaking prophetically. But all of those things are irrelevant in the story. But what is not irrelevant is that in this city, there are people in whom the Spirit of God has come to live, who are part of a story that is eternal in Cleveland, in the United States, everywhere where his spirit comes. Let me close with a question. How would your life look different if you truly believed that this is true? That you have been chosen, that you have been adopted, that you have been given a robe of righteousness, that you, even as we speak, are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Not that you thought that that was true, but that you actually believed it. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for these words. Thanks for that we don't have to wonder what this means, that, that God has come to visit us in Christ, and what, but that you've left us these words. You said that you would not leave us as orphans, but that you would send your spirit. 
And I ask you anew this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come. That you would find residence in us. That we would make room for you. That the temple of the living God would live in us and through us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is joy. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is peace. May that picture be lived out in us for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.